Hi, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of Bloomberg Intelligence's Tech Disruptors podcast. My name is Geeta Ranganathan. I'm a media analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, Bloomberg's in-house research platform. We are really excited and delighted to have with us today David Gandler, the CEO and co-founder of Fubo TV, a sports streaming platform. We're hoping to get some insights into the latest technological innovations in the streaming space and the latest growth initiatives for Fubo. But I'd like to kick off our conversation, David, by asking you a little bit more about yourself and the history of Fubo and how it was founded. Thank you for having me. You know, Fubo is still a very young company. It was founded in 2015, and I believe it was around January 8th. And the company was really built off of my past history and my relationship with media and television and technology. Everything from the name all the way through the strategy. And so I'll give you a little background. I have been in media my whole career. I like to say that I've probably sold media in more ways than probably anyone left in the space. I started in local television ad sales at a local station. As I like to say, DMA number 35, if I'm correct, which is San Antonio, DMA number seven Hispanic. And so I have a long history of working at, you know, different areas of the business. So local television, then local cable out of Time Warner Cable Media Sales. So I have a solid understanding of all of the technologies that Canoe Ventures at the time brought to, you know, the cable space. And so I worked at Time Warner Cable Media Sales in New York. So obviously selling things like New York One News, the local news network from what is now known as Charter, as well as the regional sports network and 40 of the top rated television networks that carried advertising at the time. And from there, I went on to one of my favorite places, which was Scripps Networks Interactive, which was the parent company of Food Network HDTV and Travel Channel. Uh, and I worked on the digital side there, developing campaigns across, you know, Food Network Magazine, obviously television and digital. But digital was where I really sort of built out my understanding of how all of these things fit together. And, you know, at the time, you know, when display advertising was kind of the thing, I, I equate that to what video, connected TV video advertising um, is today. And I remember just getting pre-roll and pre-roll was such a huge, huge endeavor. I and mean, just the different ad tech platforms that were able to deliver, you know, client side ads, right? Now we're all focused on dynamic ad insertion and server side insertion that it was a very different world. And so from there, you know, I had a, a illustrious career there. Scripps actually also invested in Fubo when I started it. And so I was very, very thankful to that group. And so from there, I went on to a small company uh, in the SVOD space, which was called Drama Fever. I don't know if you're familiar with that asset. Drama Fever was a, an aggregator of VOD content, similar to Netflix, focusing on Asian content, Asian dramas primarily from Korea, which as you know, Squid Game obviously being so big, but we were in the midst of that and producing shows at the time. And after that company was acquired eventually by Warner Brothers. Um, and at the time the company was being acquired, I had decided that I wanted to continue developing new things. And, you know, I thought that the last bastion was sports and live television. This is about, uh, the company was acquired in 2014. So Drama Fever, I think it was October-ish 2014. About two weeks later, I had decided that I wanted to get into live streaming, live sports, and, um, you know, live entertainment. And uh, again, I felt the need. It's actually pretty funny because if you think about it, the reason why I got into this was because, you know, I felt that 
as a football fan or a soccer fan, as we say in the United States, you know, I thought that wouldn't it be great to aggregate all of the world's best soccer in one place because you could never find a game and they were all over the place. Little did I know, fast forward, you know, seven years later, streaming is actually the worst thing that has happened to sports. It's actually quite, quite ironic if you think about it. And I, I can certainly expand on that notion. But, you know, and so two weeks after Drama Fever was acquired, I decided I was going to do this. And, you know, most people thought and probably still believe so that I'm out of my mind. But I think the team has done a phenomenal job, you know, in a space which, as you know, have, you know, lurking with giants. We've been able to continue to grow and outpace the competition in terms of net additions, you know, for the last two and a half years. So, again, it's a testament to technology. It's a testament to product development and one of our core capabilities, which is just speed, right, and pace. And uh, you see that throughout everything we've done over the last five or six years. Absolutely. Here we are. Yep. So, you know, Fubo obviously operates in the virtual MVPD or the virtual distributor space. We know consumers have liked these VMVPDs over the past few years, not just because they've offered obviously better, more economical price points, but also because there's a lot more flexibility, right? You're not tied into contracts. You know, it's really kind of this user-friendly experience. So you have said that VMVPDs are the future gateway or is the future gateway for the whole pay TV ecosystem. Your company has just over a million subscribers in, in a 14, 14, 14 and a half million market size. So what really sets Fubo apart technologically from your other competitors, from your VMVPD competitors? We actually started the company as a technology company, right? We were never a, an ecosystem. We were not a media company. And so we really had to focus on an area that we could control. And we knew that ultimately we had to be the best at being able to compete on a non-exclusive basis. I think what you're seeing today in the SVOD space is everyone is trying to figure out, okay, well, what piece of content should I acquire that is going to drive subscribers? And we knew that we would never have, you know, the type of deep pockets, you know, a company would be required to be able to drive that kind of traffic. So in the absence of, of, of deep pockets, one has to focus on technology to be able to even out the playing field. So, you know, we built this video platform from scratch. And even today, with some of the acquisitions that we made, we're continuing to redevelop that platform for the next generation of services. So if you think about kind of what we've done technologically, we were one of the first, if not the first, I believe we were the first, to, de- to deliver DAI in live streams. We were certainly the first to be able to deliver, you know, regional sports in an automated fashion through something called Scuddy. I remember Comcast was, was having, you know, these different events around Scuddy and automation of Scuddy marks in live in Denver, just talking about it when we had already built it. And, uh, you know, and at the time you may recall, but BAM tech was part of major league baseball. Now it's, it's part of Disney as the sort of backend, or I should say the plat, the technical technological platform for Hulu's live streaming platform. And, you know, we had already gone through a rigorous review with baseball because at the time, the only company that was allowed to actually deliver over the internet baseball was Major League Baseball because they didn't believe at the time that anyone had a secure enough platform that could deliver feeds the way we could. So 
We were the first to be approved. I believe that was non sort of BAM tech client. And so we've really focused on developing video infrastructure, you know, ad technology, which I'm sure we'll get into shortly, as well as just kind of user experience. We were the first to launch 4K. I think we were the first to have the World Cup in 4K back in 2018. And we followed up with a technology like multi-viewing, which has become an extremely popular feature on Pugo TV, where you can watch multiple games. It's actually the user experience is, is very nice, very streamlined, frictionless, and is something that, you know, we get really solid accolades on. And just the fact that we started to develop more interactive features around, you know, free games on the platform and obviously culminating with the, the sports book. But beyond that, we've made, you know, further investments that we acquired a company in India called Edison AI, which is an AI driven uh, sports platform, which will also open up a whole set of new capabilities around AI and computer vision where you can actually see what's on the screen. So right now, the tech that we're developing allows us to actually read, like, you know, you, there's facial recognition because you're looking at a, almost a still image. We can actually read faces as they're running frame by frame. You can, you can see what's on screen. So think about a world where you can, I'll give you an example from the ad side. So let's say you're watching HDTV and you're watching a home makeover show and as part of the makeover, there's a table that's in the dining room that's from Ethan Allen, for instance. And so the machine can actually read that that's an Ethan Allen table and can then in the first break potentially show you an Ethan Allen ad. So think about tying products that you see on screen to potential discrete ads on a one-to-one -one basis. I mean, we're talking about a whole new level of capabilities that are truly exciting for me, particularly someone who's been on the ad side for so long. because. For the majority of times, we always thought about products, you know, product integration. Think about just being able to use what's, what's already there and then, you know, combining that with a 30 second or 15 second ad in the following break. So some really cool stuff. And then on the, on the sports side, you know, you can also create a lot of interactive elements. For instance, you know, the machine can see that the ball is in the lower left side of your screen, which means the upper right corner, you know, might be empty. And it could be a quick pop-up of a, hey, I know you're a, you know, a Dallas Cowboys fan. Here's a shirt that's 50% off with a little clock, you know, that's, that's timing it. And so uh, we've already started to build out some capabilities, some of just making sure data matches the clock on the screen, because as you know, there's, you know, you're, you're receiving feeds that have different latency. So we've really spent a lot of time on technology. We're also rebuilding our platform in a way that allows us to really accelerate, if you can believe that, product development, you know, leveraging our back end. So think about less hard coding, more A-B testing. And so our ultimate goal, you know, given what, what we believe is that if we believe the future of video or television is aggregation, then, you know, and media companies make money by maximizing distribution, then we need to create a platform that's going to drive the most eyeballs and the great, greatest retention. And all of that can only be developed when you build a product that is second to none. And I, I believe that, you know, we're continuing to compete at the highest level in delivering a product today, domestic, but, you know, five, seven, 10 years from now with the tech platform that we're building, this will easily scale, you know, across countries, across different rules and regulations around GDPR, currencies, taxes. It's a very interesting time to be in TV, but I think the difference we've been doing is we've been really focused on technology and experience versus what others I think have been focused on, which is really about, hey, I bought this piece of content, I'm going to deliver it and you need to pay me for it.
And I think that's kind of where we think the next five to six, seven years, we think we can take a leadership position. That's great. I mean, I know this kind of ties in very closely to your whole philosophy of turning passive viewers into kind of active participants, and you're using technology really well to kind of do this. How hard do you think it is for your rivals to, you know, kind of offer similar or maybe even better capabilities? Well, let me just respond. There's a couple of things here that I'd like to sort of unpack. One is it's not that we believe in active participation. We believe that consumers deserve choice. It's just like when you're sitting in front of a computer, if you just want to read something, you can read, right? Or an iPad or phone. If you want to play, you should be able to play, which is more interactive. And so for us, it's really about, this is a, a, when I say gateway to TV, it means that there are multiple people in a household that are engaging with this product. And so we need to make it as sticky as possible. As part of that, the passive viewing experience obviously is extremely important because that's people watch TV and that's they enjoy television. But the active component is about giving people that optionality of kind of really engaging with a piece of content. So, so you know, our view is not to just create active viewing, but we want to make sure that we're able to provide the best experience for the greatest number of people in, in each household. And that's sort of been the strategy. As it relates to, you know, how quickly or or can others build this quickly? I think track record, our track record speaks for itself. As I mentioned, we were first, I think we were two years ahead of YouTube TV on 4K. We are two and a half years, I believe, ahead of YouTube on MultiView. And many of the others, you know, on data integrations. And obviously they still don't do any of the free games, but I do anticipate that, you know, most of the market will look to our product very closely and, you know, attempt to develop features that, you know, they may believe are working for us. So, you know, I I do think that we'll continue to innovate ahead of the competition from a technical and feature perspective. So you spoke a little bit about, you know, your advertising technologies, you know, dynamic ad insertion, addressable advertising. So I just wanted to remind our listeners, your business model obviously is primarily driven by subscription revenue, subscription fees, but you have made a lot of investments in the ad space. Ad revenue is high margin revenue for you. It is critical to your long-term growth story. Just wanted to hear more about, you know, all the different technologies that you're harnessing here to to kind of deliver that seamless experience. Are you envisioning, for instance, shoppable ads? You know, what is the next big frontier for you here? Uh, you are correct. Our business is, I would say, twofold, right? The first, obviously, is the subscription business. And because it's a virtual MVPD, which is pretty much a digitally delivered, you know, aggregation service of your favorite channels, we have over 200 channels on the platform. The second piece of that business is the ads business. And the ads business is, I would say, almost 100% net. So the way we post our numbers is on a net basis. So, you know, if you think about Roku, Roku gives away its box and then monetizes customer or box or stick or whatever it is that they're selling today. They are pretty much break even on the hardware and then, you know, sell advertising and that's how they generate the majority of their, their profits. We're kind of the same way. You should think about our subscription business as roughly break even over the long term. And the ads primarily is the big driver of profits. 
And so, you know, today we are south of $10 of that ARPU per, you know, somewhere in those call it sevens, seven dollars and change range. So seven to eight dollars with a, a view that we should be, you know, north of fifteen dollars. So we've got a long way to go in terms of driving that kind of value for shareholders. So you know the first thing is you want to first of all we do everything we do right now is dynamic ad insertion, which is server side ad insertion, which is what allows us to have that, you know, frictionless experience. You don't see any of those infinite loaders that you might see on a website or because all of this is sort of streamed on the back end. It's stitched on the back end, I should say. And nothing is actually done on the client side. And when we say the client side, that means the actual video player that you see. So before it gets to your video player, your Apple TV or your Roku video player, it's already stitched in. So we've spent a lot of time redeveloping that. And the reason why I would say we've been slower on that than on any other component of our stack is because when we signed our initial content deals, there were certain requirements, vendor requirements that, you know, for reasons that, you know, I I don't think are relevant for our conversation, you know, just don't fit the profile of a forward thinking, you know, technology company that is looking to drive, you know, or maximize ad sales in many ways, whether it's on CPM, whether it's on, you know, addressability, you know, contextual advertising on any of that. And to be able to run these auctions in real time, you know, I think not every system is able to do that. And so we've been upgrading for the last, call it six to eight months. And the only reason why we haven't done it quicker is because we have a business to run and we're a public company. So you know, you can't just have ads go to zero. And so we have to kind of be very careful and slow roll, you know, the implementation. So that's kind of how we look at it in terms of like, you know, capabilities going forward. I gave you sort of a a small glimpse into, you know, what we're doing now with Edison AI in terms of being able to put up information, but think of Fubo as an ecosystem, right? There are, you know, hundreds of companies today whether it's a TikTok, an Apple, a Google, a Sonos, everybody is looking, Android, looking to really create an ecosystem and maximize the value of their customers. And I think what we've been able to accomplish, and this is why aggregating TV is so, is so critical, is we have consumers that watch 100 hours plus of television every month. Okay, so you have, A, you have an attractive audience, an audience that's already paying, right? I always say there's a huge difference between advertising on a, you know, free AVOD platform. You know, there's a whole host of them, you know who they are. But, you know, if you're a brand like Procter & Gamble and your product on the shelf in a Walmart is at a premium price to a generic product, then you need to make sure that you're talking to customers that are willing to pay for brands, right? And so, you know, if you have a piece of content on Fubo, that is the same piece of content on another free platform. You know, if I'm a brand, I rather pay a massive premium to a company like Fubo that charges, you know, 60 or $70 a month versus free because people who watch free TV probably, you know, are looking for products that are least expensive, if not free. So that's one component of, of this, why I think it's really incredible. And so the other piece of the 100 hours per month is that we're collecting an exorbitant amount of data, billions of data points. And this is where I think a lot of, I would say, investors don't understand, right? You have sort of two types of industries or, or businesses. One where you know you take an Amazon or a Google and over time, those businesses become more valuable because they're collecting more information and able to provide more relevant content and more relevant capabilities. And those businesses you know, grow over time. 
And then you have businesses that don't have any data and, you know, you have to amortize them over time, right? Because they're just, they're a depreciating asset. And so what Fubo is, is very similar to one of those companies. Again, obviously not at that scale, not even close, but it's about collecting all of this data. And then like, for instance, if I know that you are a hardcore Dallas Cowboys fan and you like Manchester United and you watch... I don't know, Food Network all day long. And you're a news junkie because from 7 to 10 a.m. every morning, you're watching five or six different news channels. You know, I now know something about you other than the fact that, you know, we know that you, where you live and all that other information. And in many cases, it's not implied, right? We know who you are because you told us who you were and where you live, et cetera. But it becomes very interesting because at that point, you know, when you say shoppable tech, Edison can already see what's on screen. And so if I know that you tend to watch the same three or four shows and we know the teams that you like, we know the zip code that you live in. I mean, we know this. We're not, this is not something, some third party lookalike modeling. We know. I mean, we literally know. Obviously, all of the emails are hashed. We don't know who you are in particular, but we can say this hashed ID, you know, can be targeted in these ways. And so even if, for instance, you're watching you know, HGTV and you're not watching the Dallas Cowboys, we can actually offer you a Dallas Cowboys shirt, for instance, right? In another program. And so we could actually follow you across different channels and what you're doing. By the way, that leads into better technology because at some point, I think you're going to see discrete channels where we know the shows you watch. You may say via voice command, you know, show me my favorite programming for today. And we already know we can cut that up for you and serve it to you differently than we would serve it to anybody else in your household. So I do believe the power of the technology coupled with the data collection and the relationship with the customer will allow us to create and optimize advertising experiences. And as you know, today, it really comes down to, you know, what is the ROI or, you know, what is the value of that investment that you make? Because advertising is an investment today. And you're making an investment and you need to see results. And I think this is kind of where the value of a platform like ours really comes into play. Different from, you know, you know, like a Paramount or a Peacock, because they can only see what they see, right? They don't see what we see. We see how does a person interact with CBS content? And then how did that, does that person move over to NBC content or to, you know, discovery content or to news programming? And so having that full picture, maybe they have sleepless nights. And so that typically means that there could be some either health or financial issues or something else. So there's ways in which that we can really, you know, create experiences that could be helpful for consumers, but at the same time, obviously create, you know, very compelling passing opportunities for, for companies. Understood. No, that was great. I, I just want to get, David, from you, your very, very high level views on the advertising market. So, you know, you've spoken about connected TV advertising, you know, the opportunities in, in that marketplace. But we know that there was always this kind of thought that, you know, maybe connected TV has not really taken off in a big way. There's still this big delta between, you know, CPMs and, and the amount of time that people are spending viewing their, you know, connected TV devices. Of course, now we have Netflix and Disney kind of entering the market. There seem to be two schools of thought. You know, there's one school of thought that says this really kind of revolutionizes the whole connected TV marketplace kind of validates that should push CPMs 
higher and then there's the other school of thought which says well there's going to be too much supply and it's going to push cpms lower so just kind of wanted to get you know your sense where you kind of yeah. see that shaking out it look it's a great question i think there's and by the way history repeats itself i remember when you know pre-roll started and at, when i was at scripts digital i think pre-roll cpm so there was a 30 second piece of content and with a 30 second ad Adjacent to that 30 second piece of content, we were charging, I believe, somewhere between 26 and $35. So very similar to CPMs we'd like to see in CTV today. And I remember that there was a year where there was some disruption and companies like Five Min, I don't know if you remember that one, which was acquired by AOL. I can't remember what year, 10, 15 years ago. But they started to aggregate all of this content and offer CPMs at, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, because they had so much inventory. And they pretty much didn't care because they they had a commission and that was that. And I remember, you know, everything had plunged. All of our premium content, if you wanted to run against Bobby Flay or you know, or or any of the big shows that 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 were on Food Network or HGTV, those CPMs digitally would plummet. And uh, you know, I had dinner with a client post their cancellation just to better understand what was happening. And what what amazed me is that they at the time was that they were so focused on yeah, but your CPM is you know thirty. I'm buying right now pre roll between three and six. And you know, at first I'm like, oh my god. Step one is that sounds illegal, right? Because how can you survive buying content or producing content and only charging three to six? So that's one. The problem is not that it was illegal. The problem is that there's a lot of bot traffic, right? And so you don't actually know what you're buying. Yes, the ads are running. I've seen them, dozens of ads. That was one problem that I, that I recall. And then the second problem is if you did any of the studies that typically came with bigger buys, you would see that there was no ad recall. There was no brand recall. You had nothing right? Because people look for memorable moments. You know, you know what ad was on the Super Bowl. Or if I ask you, you know, name a, a carbonated drink, you're, you're going to say Coca-Cola or maybe Pepsi. You don't go further down the list, right? Of course, if I force you to sit there and think about it, you might get another one in there or a fourth one in there. But I think what happens is typically you lose the value when you're not, of course, I think you should have a blended CPM and you should buy, you know, lower quality with higher quality. But again, how low can you go, right? So I think that's one thing that, that I think you have to think about in terms of campaigns. The piece about Disney and Netflix is great, but you have only $70 billion to work with, right? That's the size of the sort of TV ad business. And so it's haves and haves nots, right? And so what happens is that it's a zero sum game. And so someone's going to lose out and someone's going to, you know, pick up advertisers or advertising dollars. So, you know, I'm sure that Netflix will pick up advertisers. I, I've heard rumors of the $65 or $80 CPMs. Personally, I think that those that will pay that type of CPM will be the ones that believe that there's going to be some PR value. And I'm sure there will be a lot of PR value. It's sort of the first innovative, you know, top 10 advertisers, I guess. But I think ultimately that will normalize that unless, you know, you're, it's all data-driven and addressable, which Netflix obviously have, has a very large base and can really segment its, uh, its users in very different categories. And they have a, a very wide spectrum of content, similar to cable, that I think would be pretty powerful. But on the Disney side, obviously amazing IP. And I think that what they'll probably experience is folks that have been buying them on TV, probably continuing to buy them, but moving those dollars from TV to, to digital. So I think 
that's that's on the, those two companies specifically. I think over you know the ad market. I mean, they're they're both companies want to take advantage of some very obvious tailwinds, right? There are clear tailwinds here. People, you know, advertisers want addressable campaigns. They want to be able to understand what works and what doesn't work. And so that has to be done digitally. And the pace of innovation is so much quicker digitally than it is on a than on a box that you've had in your house for 10, 15, some some cases 20 years, right? So I do believe that, you know, you'll see more and more money moving over. I think right now roughly about 50% of viewership is on streaming. And, you know, again, just to dumb it down a little bit, about 20 to 22% of ad dollars have followed. So there's a long way to go. But I do believe, as I said in my earlier comment, is that there is content or platforms that advertisers should pay a premium for. And then there are others where you just get a lot of tonnage and you need to pay the appropriate price for tonnage. And again, I don't think that all platforms, just because they're on connected TV, are created equal, right? And so it's going to be interesting to see how things transpire. But, you know, I do believe that more and more dollars will move over to connected devices. And again, I think it's it's the players with the best content, the best retention, the best engagement, and the best data, those typically, you know, will will survive. The other thing that I think we need to focus on is formats. And so, you know, I've been a big proponent for years now of reducing 30 second ads to 15 seconds. If you can't get your message out in 15 seconds, what makes you think you're going to get it out in 30 seconds? That's one. And the second piece to that is that people just don't have the attention span, right? They check out. So, you know, it's probably in your favor to create messaging that is high impact and shorter time intervals. So all of these things I think are, are quite interesting, but I do believe the future of connected TV advertising is going to be quite strong. And I do believe that there's so much more innovation. We're just not even there yet. Right now, it's just about selling out inventory and focusing on addressable and having these private marketplaces. But I do believe that, you know, I think in the next 12 to 24 months, you're just going to start to see some innovative opportunities. Absolutely. And, and, you know, kind of speaking about connected TV and the other big disruptor there, you know, we just got some numbers out of Amazon's Thursday night football. So it looks like oh. they had some really impressive viewing. Again, just want to get your thoughts here. I mean, is this a watershed moment where you think more and more sports starts to go to, to streaming? Uh, I mean, how do you view it for yourself? Is this is this good because more and more people are actually streaming sports or is it an ultimately uh, something that is bad for, you know, the linear TV ecosystem and your connection to that. Yeah. So first of all, thank you for telling me. I did not know the, the numbers were out today or yesterday. So I'll have to take a look at that. Well, they got 13 million. So 13 million million for their Thursday night football game. Yeah. Got it. That's a, that's a pretty solid number. I look, I think that, you know, as I said, streaming for sports is not a good thing because of what you just said, right? If you're think about the average customer, what do they want? They want the NFL. Let's just say, right? So now to get the NFL, they go to Amazon Prime, but they're okay because they probably had the Prime membership because everyone has Prime for really one major reason, and that's delivery. Not sure that the NFL has played a huge role in in really upping that that business for them. But what it does say is that with all these different media companies having one night of football, it creates a lot of for consumers, a lot of frustration. So if you think about and I believe I said this on on one of our calls already, just think about why Netflix was able to disrupt television, 
there were two reasons. One is, you know, the price. People did not want to pay up for cable when you can get Netflix for $7.99. Obviously, it's no longer $7.99. But the idea was, hey, I'll pay less and I'll get the same content. I still get all of the AMC content. I get The Office. I get friends. You pretty much had a cable bundle at a tenth of the price, maybe less. And, you know, you had no ads. Those were kind of the two things that people really, I think, enjoyed and allowed Netflix to really grow very quickly. And so fast forward, what has happened? You now have the NFL on five services, right? Or more, I don't even know how many services. Well, now you have NFL Plus, you've got, you know, you've got Amazon Prime, you've got Peacock, you've got Paramount, you've got ESPN and EPC. And then you have the guys that I think have done a really great job differentiating themselves as Fox, which has really stayed out of this. And I think as, as are continuing to create a lot more value for a company like ours for their content. And so, you know, when you think about the two things that customers hated, it was the price and the ads. Now, what do they get? They're going to get ads, right? And right now we're all saying, yeah, but it's less expensive than the full price, no ad service. But the reality is they're all publicly traded companies and, you know, analysts, like you were going to say, hey, how do you plan to grow? And so increasing price on your ad product is what's going to happen. And so you're you're dealing with more ads. You're dealing with having to have multiple services. And when you stack those services to get just the NFL, you're probably going to end up with the same number of ads. You're going to end up with the same price because you have to stack all these services up. The only problem is you don't have the great platform, you don't have the personalization, and you don't have the innovative technology that an aggregator would build, right? And when I say personalization, again, let's say you watched uh, Thursday Night Football on Amazon, and then you went over to Paramount Plus to watch Yellowstone. All of that information is gone. It's irrelevant. Like no one knows what's happening. And so it actually is taking the business in the wrong direction. But I do believe, and I, I, I think a good example for your listeners would be Time Warner. We've had two instances a decade apart where the concept was you take one of the best movie studios, right? Or, or media companies, which is Time Warner, and you combine it with a massive distributor, a very large scale distributor, and you get a winning combination. And so if you think about what happened with AOL at the time, I think it was the largest digital distributor, nothing happened. Decade later, same thesis, and it was, well, now I'll combine with AT&T, it's 150 million customers, we're going to crush everybody. The reality is that these two types of businesses do not work. I know some of your listeners are probably going to be thinking, what is this guy talking about? I mean, it's a fact, and I, I can explain to you in a very simple way why that, that doesn't work. And so I'll use... You know, let's let's pick an example. Game of Thrones. Okay, I think it's a timely example. So, with Game of Thrones, for example, if everybody wants to watch Game of Thrones and it's exclusive to AT and T, AT and T is going to grow, right? That's clear. The problem is when you get to the finale and management at AT and T picks up the bat phone. That's DC Comics, by the way, which is a Time Warner asset. And so, picks up the phone and says, "Hey guys, what's next in the pipeline?" We A, have to keep growing and B, we need to retain these users. And they say, well, there's no other show like Game of Thrones. There's nothing we can do right now that can drive that kind of value. And so what happens is finale occurs and then customers start to look for other platforms because they have to keep watching. And so now what, what's happened is you've had a short-term growth of AT&T. You haven't maximized the value of Game of Thrones because if you would have given it to Fubo and Hulu T Live TV and Sling and everybody else, 
you can maximize the value of that asset. And so instead, what happens is AT&T grew. Game of Thrones, Time Warner did not maximize Game of Thrones or could not maximize Game of Thrones. Again, this is just a theoretical example on on shows and distribution. And then what happens is there's no new show. And so AT&T starts to shrink or remains, you know, status quo. And so neither side is ever maximizing the value of its assets, whether it's technology, distribution, or, or, or media. And so that sort of, you know, imbalance, if you will, creates a lot of havoc for P&Ls. It's not realistic to be able to create that kind of value. And the last thing I'll say is, would Game of Thrones have been Game of Thrones if it wasn't distributed across Canal Plus and Digiturk in Turkey and Singtel in Singapore and the hundreds and hundreds of other distributors that were marketing this in their local markets and really kind of, you know, made this a phenomenon. Would that have really been, I mean, are there no shows today, whether they're on Apple Plus or some other, you know, platforms that have similar quality production, beautiful costumes, you know, scenery, et cetera, could they have not been the same? I don't, I don't think that that would have been possible. So my sense is that over over the next 24 months, it's going to be harder and harder for media companies to monetize their content. And I think, um, you know, David Zaslov in his comments, I think he's correct, actually, saying, hey, hey, look, I don't think we should keep going this route. We need to, A, cut our budgets and maximize the value. Because if you think about content, how do you make money? You make money in the long tail, right? You have a 7% hit rate. So that's seven out of 100 shows you produce that are actually valuable. And then over time, you know, the residuals, you start to make a lot of money, right? So think about, you know, shows like Seinfeld or a movie like Home Alone that is continuing to just print cash because they're being maximized. So I do believe that as the, you know, as it becomes more difficult to cash flow in streaming, I'm particularly talking about the plus services. I do believe that the markets will eventually push back and expect profitability. And so call it a year, call it two years. But at some point, I think these businesses get rationalized and they realize that the best way is to have a service, of course, but to also maximize the value of that content. And particularly around sports, you know, you can't just have 20 million customers. You need to, I mean, if you think about the cable bundle, why sports rights continues to to grow is because you're paying, you know, people that don't watch sports are paying for sports. They just are. And so when you get only people who like sports, I mean, I I think there was some research that came out many years ago and often that only something like 35% of people watch sports. They're the loudest people. They're the ones we notice the most. But the reality is, is that, you know, it's going to be tougher and tougher. And as an aggregator, I feel that, you know, we're this year we'll pay out, I don't know, roughly, you know, don't quote me on this, but roughly about, I think, 800 in the zip code of $800 million. All of that flows to the bottom line for medium companies. So it's very tough to walk away from when you're burning 1 billion, 2 billion, 3 billion on your streaming platform to walk away from 800 million bucks, right? And because you need to, again, you're in the business of producing content and you need to kind of continue to fuel that. I think what is interesting about Netflix, which I think this is where the real disruption is going to happen. I don't know if, if management will be listening to this, but they may want to listen to this. My sense is they have accumulated a massive, massive library of content. But the shows you hear about are Ozark, you know, and maybe two or three other shows, which tells me exactly what I was saying here is that the hit rate is actually quite low. So out of the $20 billion that you spent 
something like one to $2 billion is actually really valuable. Making the $18 billion that's sitting at the bottom of your catalog that nobody cares about, very expensive. And so my sense is if they start to, well, they already got into ads, but the real money I think is going to be when they come to aggregators like Fubo and say, hey, I'm going to give you 800 of my shows or 900 of my shows. I'm going to give you the Netflix lifestyle vertical, the Netflix, you know, just the same way cable. And the live channels will serve as a way for people to discover the content and then go to SVOD. And then what you'll find, and this happened many times on Netflix, is it shows that are dying actually are resurrected because they were on another platform, right? I think you've seen that very well. So my gut is that at some point, Netflix has to go deep into that library and aggregate that and and just really distribute that to aggregators like Fubo, which should create, I think, some pressure on the other media companies to also focus on aggregation because you don't want to lose that pie. I mean, it's again, it's printing money pie. So I do think that there's so much disruption left we're only in the beginning of stages of this, and the technology will inevitably really drive a lot of this. But I think strategically and technologically, there's so many things that have yet to happen. Uh, I'm extremely bullish on the business. For Fubo, sports, I think we'll have to shake out, but we'll have to, we'll have to see that. But I think we're very well positioned. We drive a lot of value for customers. We drive a lot of value for the IP holders, which in this case are the leagues. And we drive tremendous value for the media companies. And last but not least, they all need us because if you have a world where it's just Google or Amazon, I think we all know what happens. They start to dictate the rules. And so again, I, I feel like we're in a good place and you know, we'll, we're going to continue to grow. And you know, as some of these things kind of settle in, I think we'll be the beneficiaries. Absolutely. That was great. Yeah. Thank you so, so much, David, Thank for you. joining us today on our Tech Disruptors podcast. Thank you for all the wonderful insights. We need to have you back again for some oh. more, you know, conversations on streaming economics, maybe streaming oh, wars, oh, yeah. but we'll wrap it up here. And uh, for our listeners, Casual don't forget, <laughs> don't forget to join <laughs> us again for more exciting episodes of Tech Disruptors. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.